Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we have a few announcements to make. The program of the third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit is taking shape. Our confirmed speakers include Drs. Andrew Tobin, Ryan Roth, Rosie DeWalibi, Karen Gregory, Oliver Hartley, Ines Liebscher, Christelle Manet, and many more. This year, the meeting will be held between October 10th and the 16th. The meeting will be virtual to allow you to join us from anywhere in the world. Live talks will be hosted on Zoom from October 10th to the 15th, and everyone is welcome to participate by presenting a poster or submitting a pre-recorded talk. Similarly to last year, we will have presentation prizes for trainees. We're also trying out a few new things as well. We'll have networking and poster sessions on Wonder. We'll also have a full day dedicated to trainees. If you're a trainee, hurry up and submit your abstract today to give a talk or potentially present a poster. Visit drgpcr.com summit today. We will also be hosting three workshops. We're excited to share that we'll have Dr. Sam Hoare and Dr. Luciana Leo, who will run a workshop on data analysis. Dr. Nicola Smith will host a workshop on how to preserve data integrity in the lab. And this year, we welcome back the GPCR DB team with Dr. David Gloriam, Dr. Albert Quistra, Gaspar Nandi Sekeresh, and Jimmy Caroli. Everyone is welcome to attend the summit. And it's free when you become a Dr. GPCR Ecosystem site member, which is also free. Speaking of the ecosystem, we are excited to share that the Dr. GPCR Ecosystem 2.0 platform is now open. Visit drgpcr.com to explore the ecosystem today. Please note that we are slowly migrating from our old website to our new website. You'll always be able to find us at drgpcr.com. And we thank you for your patience during this transition period. The ecosystem, if you're wondering, is your GPCR-focused virtual playground. Join over 75 of your peers who have already registered as site members. Remember, it's free. You'll also have the option to select a plan and get access to all things Dr. GPCR and much more. You get access to the new podcast episodes with video before they get released to the general public. Our new group discussions and forums, our job board, our learning center, where you'll be able to take a course or even prepare and share a course with your colleagues. And last but not least, you'll be able to discover GPCR companies and much more. Take advantage of everything that the new GPCR-dedicated online playground has to offer today by visiting drgpcr.com and becoming a site member. Remember, it's free. Once you are a site member, you can also choose to sign up for an ambassador program, which means that you'll able you'll get your own dedicated Dr. GPCR ecosystem link. And every time someone subscribes using your link for a year, you'll get compensated. Last but not least, we're also looking for content creators. Subscribe to the ecosystem and start writing your own GPCR-focused content. Share it and show off your talents. You can always reach us at hello at drgpcr.com or visit drgpcr.com to find out more about all our activities. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and today I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Patrick Sexton from Monash University. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Yamina. How are you going? I'm great. I'm so excited that we, we got to talk today. I have to ask, what time is it? Oh, it's 9 a.m. It's a good time. It's, not, it's a good time. Okay, it's not too bad. It's 7 p.m. here, so it's it's not a... But it's already Wednesday, <laughs> which I, yeah. think, I still find it fascinating. The time working with the time difference. Yeah, it's a joy when you've got uh, meetings with people in the US and Europe, and try and find a time. Most of that means I'm two a.m. in the morning. Wow! And I remember last year at the summit, you I think it was four a.m. where when you were presenting. Um, so kudos, Quite kudos possibly to you. yes. <laughs> kudos, kudos to you. All right. So, um, would you please give us a quick introduction as to who you are and what do you do? So I guess uh, I trained as a pharmacologist at the University of Melbourne um, uh, and then basically did my PhD at one of the teaching and research hospitals um, linked to the University of Melbourne. Um, 
I would classify myself as a molecular pharmacologist and myself, or one more correctly these days, my research group studies the structure and function of G-protein coupled receptors, not surprisingly, with an emphasis on, on the class B1 peptide hormone subfamily. Um, and within the team, um, and, and the team is co-led by Professor Denise Wooden, um, who I've worked with for many years now, we have projects studying GPCRs across most areas of preclinical research. So from elucidation of structure and dynamics, structure, function, patterns of signaling and regulation at cellular level, including, you know, obvious things like biased agonism and allostery, um, through in, in, in limited projects to whole, you know, animal physiology and models of disease in some cases. Um, and I guess I, I work as a research-only scientist. Um, so my position is as a senior uh, principal research fellow funded by one of our major funding bodies, the National Health and Medical Research Council. I have an appointment uh, as a professor in the drug discovery biology theme at uh, our institute, uh, and I'm also the director of a, a training centre um, funded by the other major funding body, the Australian Research Council, and that's in the area of cryo-electron microscopy and membrane proteins. Wow, and how do you juggle all of these together? It's a lot of titles. <laughs> Um, well, I'm, I'm very lucky, uh, you know, in being able to have Denise as a co-leader of the group. Um, Denise actually does a lot more work than I do in, in keeping our projects going and, and um, making sure that the students are uh, uh, looked after. I, I obviously, we, we go to the project meetings together, etc. But I mean, she does a lot of the, the heavy lifting, um, as well as being, you know, a brilliant strategist as well when we talk about where we're going to take our work so that that helps a lot and then there's obviously um a range of people within the department institute that we're able to work together with and and you can sort of share the load and and, and the center i have a center manager so that helps a lot wow still it's it's a lot of responsibilities you mentioned at the beginning that you trained as a pharmacologist how did you even get into science uh well as a student, I mean, science was what interested me. Um, I, I was never a humanities person. Uh, and so, um, you know, I, I did science as an undergraduate. And, you know, if I'm being honest here, I, I ended up doing pharmacology as, as what I thought of as, as the path, path of least resistance. It seemed to be the, <laughs> inverted commas, um, in my mind, easiest set of subjects to graduate with. Um, mm -hmm. So that's sort of why I went down that path, but but obviously, you know, having done it, um, you know, it, it's an area of research that I'm very passionate about, you know. I, I believe in concentration response. Agreed, agreed. And I, I've seen you present, so it, that comes through clearly. The reason I was asking is I wanted to know if you've always known that you wanted to be a scientist or was there any other subjects that you were better at? Some guests say, you know, I wanted to be a physicist, so, but I was poor at fit, not good at physics, and I ended up doing pharmacology instead. Mm. Uh, well, no, my original thought was I wanted to do medicine, um, but then, you know, my marks weren't that great, so... <laughs> didn't have an option of that. But having said that, um, I, I, I wouldn't want to do medicine. <laughs> um, no, no, knowing, knowing, you know, what it is and, and, and a lot of people who are doctors, uh, a lot of my friends are and so forth, and, and it's like it's not, I would not have been good at it. I think you're not, not a the, great people person. <laughs> you're not the only one. I think I, I'm one of those people as well who was pushed towards medicine. I never had the grades. And to be honest, I'm so glad that I did not have the grades. I was more research inclined than medicine. And I think you need to yeah, have so much more interesting. Yeah, I think so too. And unless, yeah, it's, it's very different. I think you have to have a different personality type to do that. Did, yeah. you, did you think about when, when you were thinking about medicine, uh, how old were you? I'm trying to figure out as a teenager, or as a child, was it something that you're interested in? Uh, or? I, I don't think it was anything with a lot of, um, you know, fervor or anything. It was more a, oh, yeah, uh, being a doctor would sound good. You know, okay. it's that sort of level of, of commitment, you know, so basically no real commitment. Fair enough. That That's, that's fine, too. I think as long as you went through the path that you went through and ended up where you really want to be and you love what you're doing. The rest uh, is history. Yeah. So exactly. wh when did you first hear about GPCRs? Uh, 
now you're straining my memory. Um, probably during undergraduate, I mean, because we would have done beta receptors and whatnot, so uh, I, almost certainly um, then. Um, and then my, my PhD uh, was actually working with a, a G-protein coupled receptor. So um, certainly by that time, I was engaged with GPCRs. What um, when you first heard about GPCRs, did you think, oh, oh, this is an interesting system? I really want to get to know more about it, or it was you kind of fell into the field during your PhD? Um, so the answer is yeah, I fell into it. <laughs> I, I would I was not thinking about GPCRs as GPCRs at all um, at, at that point in time, um, and indeed, you know. Um, what I ended up doing is my PhD uh, was more by inverted commas necessity than than mm -hmm. than particular choice. Um, so um, I, I always I did know um, from my undergraduate that I wanted to to carry on and, and do research and, and do a PhD. Um, but my my undergraduate marks um, were not spectacular. Um, I was not good at studying, <laughs> so um, I didn't qualify for any of the standard scholarships. Um, And I, I'll probably make a point of note at this time. I didn't realize it at that time, but I have been clinically diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, which was only um, about 10 years ago. And I only point that out uh, in, you know, for those people who are worrying about, you know, they might be typical, maybe atypical, uh, and that there's lots of paths to, to, to be successful. So um, it's, it wasn't an impediment for me, um, just meant that, you know, I wasn't good at exam type scenarios where I had to sit down and, and write, learn things. So different, you know, paths for different people. Um, anyway, so because um, I, I didn't qualify for the standard scholarships that, that was the, is the way our system works, um, so I, I looked at people who had project funding through um, scholarships that, you know, say funded from their grants and so forth. And so I applied for, for a number of projects um, and Uh, one of the places I interviewed, um, and, and I'll point out they didn't actually offer the project I applied for, but they did contact me afterwards um, about a different project. Um, so I guess they at least made a positive impression. Um, and then that that would be a, a collaboration between the group um, that I interviewed with, which was led by a person called Fred Mendelssohn, who's very well known in that antitensin field, and also the a, a group at a a nearby institution um, led by Jack Martin, who was a leading bone researcher. Uh, and then that turned out to be an ideal project for me because it meant that um, the technical aspect of my project was led by my main supervisor, which was Fred, uh, and that was using what was at the time a very new technology, which is this in vitro radiography, um, and the goal was to map the location of receptor binding sites, whereas the, the subject matter of, of my project was actually Jack's interest, which was um, bone receptors, and in this case it was the calcitonin receptor. And so, um, and he was on a different campus, so I, I didn't see him that often. And that then gave me a lot of freedom within the project. So those within Fred's group working on angiotensin projects, Fred was very hands-on and <laughs> micromanaged. Um, but, you know, uh, because my area of project was, wasn't his main thing, he, he, I had a lot of freedom to, to do stuff. And so that was great, um, and it meant that, you know, I, I you know, was the local expert and I, I, you know, could pursue the direction of the research pretty much as, as I, I wanted to. Um, it also meant that that actually during this time, I actually wrote my first major grant, um, which was on the work I was doing, uh, which did get funded, but I wasn't an investigator on it because um, students weren't allowed to be CIs and grants. Um, but that, that was, a, a, you know, a good experience as well um, that I learned during that time and that came from the fact that, that it was a, in a distinct area from the main work of that group. And so, you know, that was formative. That's what led me into to studying um, receptors and, and studying um, GPCRs, in this case, the calcitonin family uh, receptor. Um, and then I've been lucky, you know, thereafter to, to basically pick up independent fellowships shortly after completing my PhD and then, you uh, Uh, not long after independent grant funding um, from, you know, the competitive agencies as well as from industry. Um, and that's an interesting serendipitous story. Might get to that later. And then I, you know, moved institutions and eventually 
um, went to the Department of Pharmacology in um, 1998, and that's where I met Arthur Christopoulos. And most people in GPCR field would be familiar with Arthur. And so um, we've worked together, obviously, for a very long time, and I've had a very productive collaboration and a very good friends. Um, but I moved from that department to the Florey Institute a couple of years later, um, mostly for political reasons. Uh, and then we moved together to Monash in 2006 uh, as an opportunity to bring our groups together um, before eventually moving to to where we currently are, which is the um, Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, which is on a little campus that's actually close to the University of Melbourne. Um, and, I mean, Arthur's now dean, um, and uh, Denise joined our group just before we moved to to um, uh, the, the Clayton campus, the, the pharmacy campus and and obviously Arthur and Denise have been critical collaborators for me they're amazing scientists and they've been key people in my career and they're next on my email list I actually emailed Arthur who accepted to come on the podcast but I think with with the new position he has it's been it's been really amazing he's, he's been crazy busy um I mean he, he had the joy of taking over as dean just before COVID hit and so yeah. his first two years was just putting out fire after fire after fire. Having said that, um, we're the number one ranked in the world in the in one of the surveys for pharmacy and pharmacology, so can't be That's doing fantastic. too badly. That's fantastic, and I can't wait to hear back from Denise. I also emailed her. Um, so let, let us take a few steps back because you made many great points. First, I want to thank you for sharing the fact that, you know, you have – been diagnosed clinically with ADHD. I think it's an important topic to talk about because a lot of us or a lot of listeners may may benefit from knowing that successful scientists have attention deficit disorder. And that shouldn't stop you from being a great scientist, it shouldn't stop you from being able to have a full, you know, satisfying career. Well, absolutely. Um, it means you have to work a bit differently. So, you know, yes. I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go with that. That makes me more creative, but well, I, <laughs> I don't you know, think it makes me any more creative than anybody else to do. I, I don't know. I think we all have to work with what we're given, with what we have. We can build new habits. We can work around our difficulties and, and take them as they come. For example, I don't, I read a paper and I don't remember most of it. All I remember is the take-home message and where to Google the information. I cannot hold on to information. I can hold on to where to find the information or who to talk to to get that information, like you just mentioned. And that's my yeah. workaround. And for years, I felt bad about it because I, you know, I you talk you, you mentioned Denise and, and Arthur, but I've had colleagues who remembered all these things. They could tell you the year, the authors, you know, the little details. And in my mind, I was like, maybe it's just me. But it's not. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's frustrating. Um, <laughs> uh, particularly, I mean, Graham Milligan's great. He, he has yes. all that information, like yes. snap, 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 <laughs> and and yes. then you remember. <laughs> he loves phrasing like, and you remember the paper published in in nineteen ninety three uh, with you know these authors and 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 they did these specific experiments. Uh, I mean, go yes. yeah, yes, Graham. Of course, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then, how funny that you mentioned Graham because I was uh, at the GPCR retreat in May and Michel Bouvier was mentioning exactly the same thing about Graham. And then I recorded the, our podcast episode with Graham and he was mentioning specific papers. And in my mind, I did exactly the same thing. Of course, I do remember those papers. <laughs> but I think it's um, admirable. No, no, yeah, I, I mean, it, it's great. I mean, we need people like Graham, you know, who remember, you know, the, the old literature as well as the new literature. And, yeah. um, you know, bringing that up and then reminding people is, is you know, really important. You know, the number of times, for example, that, you know, he basically reminded you that somebody had done something already, you know, years ago um, and that, you know, <laughs> wasn't that novel. Um, <laughs> you know, just just – you know, it's an important lesson, particularly for, for younger scientists, with so much information that comes out every year, it's new information, that, yeah. that a lot of, you know, things were actually discovered <laughs> more than five years ago. Exactly. Uh, and, and, and that you need to be aware of that literature and not just through um, what's in reviews because, uh, you know, people don't always interpret the, the information um, the correct way. That is correct. 
that that is true. Um, all right, the next great point that you made is really mentioning that you already knew as a PhD student that your working style was not to be micromanaged. You mentioned that you're working on the calcitonin receptors and having this collaboration, having these two mentors, one further out than the other, allowed you to really adapt or to really thrive and be creative in your own project. And I think that's that's something important that a lot of PhD students or, or even postdocs sometimes don't realize what is their working style and that would help them pick the right lab for them. Uh, yes. I mean, that it's important, you know, when you're looking for, for the lab you want to go into to, to speak um, to the people who work in that lab and get a feeling for their, their style and, and, you know, what works for those individuals within that lab um, and also speak to a range of different labs that, that you know, are in their, their field of uh, potential interest um, because, you uh, you know the success is, is is you know in at an individual level is is going to be really how much you enjoy the, the experience um regardless of where you publish the work um if you have a great experience um then you become engaged with research as a process uh, and that that you know really should be the key driver in, in terms of you know becoming uh, successful if that's not your driver then, then your motivation is probably a little bit skewed the wrong way. What did motivate you to after your PhD? Did you how come you did a postdoc? Where where did that inspiration come from? Well, it was the natural progression. At least you know when I was doing it, that you would go and do um, you know more research, uh, and and you know I, I was lucky. I, I had a a choice of positions um and so i you know basically chose one that that um was aligned to my my work that i've been doing but gave me an ability to learn um new things so that's when i started you know learning about biochemistry and purification of, of mm-hmm. receptors and so forth um so that was great and at the same time you know i'd had some experience in grant writing and and, and fellowship writing so you know i was able to write grants uh, and and to get some independent funding quite quite quickly within a couple of years so that I effectively then had control of the direction of my research. So I was really fortunate at that level um, to have that level of independence that early. Yeah. Um, I mean, you don't – that's obviously is, is probably more unusual than not, um, and that's certainly not something you need to have in order to be very successful, um, you know, building on, on work that you do in different laboratories and in a different setting. Um, but yeah, that that was sort of my path, um, and you know, then then there's a bunch of things that happen in parallel that that helped. So, um, so I, I'll relate this story. So, one of the things that that ha- you know I found during my PhD um, was that um, so I was looking at distribution of, of calcitonin receptors and calcitonin generated peptide receptors at the time. Um, and these were the only receptors known for that family at that point in time. So as part of, you know, mapping where all these CGRP receptors were in the brain, um, as a pharmacologist, I was also doing um, competition uh, inhibition studies um, with different types of peptides. You know, mostly with the, you know, did different nuclei in the brain have different affinities and so forth. But it turned out that that when I was doing this, that there was a, subpopulation of receptors that were completely sensitive to to a calcitonin peptide it was actually a fish-like calcitonin peptide called salmon calcitonin so there was this like population of receptors that were totally insensitive and didn't compete at all and then this other population that were fully competed by this calcitonin peptide and so that um was exciting because it was a novel phenotype and uh, hadn't been recognized before um, and it turned out that that actually was the first identification of, of what um, are now known as uh, amylin receptors. And that that then becomes part of a, you know, interesting, I guess, serendipitous story. So as a, you know, early postdoctoral fellow, um, one of the things I was doing was collaborating with a physician researcher whose name was Mark Cooper. Um, so he was very much interested in the kidney at the time. And so we were collaborating. I was doing in vitro autoradiography 
um, mapping receptors in the kidney with him. So um, it turns out that that one of the discoverers of this peptide amylin is a guy called Garth Cooper. He was working at Oxford, um, but he's a New Zealander. Um, so he was actually one of the, or actually the sole scientific founder of what became amylin pharmaceuticals. Anyway, um, so um, Mark was presenting it at a meeting. Actually, both of us were at that meeting. Um, uh, and Garth Cooper was actually at that meeting as well. He'd returned to New Zealand. This was an Australasian meeting. Um, and in those days, um, we did presentations with slides. And, you know, so you'd load up your carousel in your prep room and then they would be taken off. You'd do your presentation. They all came back. Um, and so Mark ended up getting Garth's carousel. Um, and so he's pulling out the slides and going, what's this amylin peptide thing? Um, <laughs> and at the same meeting, then Amisham um, uh, were starting to sell this this new radioligand called the ionated amylin. So we said, well, let's go and, and have a play with that. Yeah. And at the same or very similar time to this, um, Mark noticed that um, there was this deal between amylin pharmaceuticals and Glaxo at the time for $20 million. And, and his comment was basically, why don't we see if we can get some of that money? <laughs> and so, or something to that effect. Um, and long story short, um, we sent off an email basically got a, a response the next day and um, we were flown to San Diego the following week. Wow. <laughs> and um, it was very surreal because it turned out that um, every single person at the company knew who I was um, because <laughs> their their binding assay for Amlin uh, were based on that receptor phenotype that I identified in my PhD. Wow. And so... <laughs> So that was the basis of, of, of how they were doing their, their um, screening for, for things. Um, and so we were lucky. We ended up with a, a bunch of grants um, from Amlin, from Glaxo, and, and so that gave us and gave me a, another block of money that, that yeah. you know, helped build the, the group quite quickly. So, and that was all serendipitous, but um, very interesting, very surreal, I have to say, when, when we went over there and, and it was like every person knew who I was. It was like, <laughs> I, was, yes. I was like two years out from my PhD. So very, well, very weird. It's an amazing compliment, though. You know, it's and when you were doing those experiments and you collected that data, who would have thought that a couple of years later you'd be famous? Well, small, in that, small famous. <laughs> but still, but still, I think you it's an important comp contribution. I think you make a great point about that when you, especially for trainees, because and and I'm thinking about myself back in the day, you know, it you're so focused on your project, you're so focused on those experiments. But sometimes it's important to keep in mind that that one experiment, yes, it might work, it's going to end up in a paper, but others might benefit from it from that data yeah, and it's I'm, exponential and you don't know. Exactly. And I mean that's sort of, you know, in 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 the sort of sets of questions one of the things you ask about, you know, what are the some of the things you would, you know, give as advice to trainees. Yes. And, and you know, the top of my list is, is like, we'll be excited about what you do. Um, you know, we're in a really privileged position that we get to know something for the first time. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you need to be excited about that. You know, it may be a small, you know, new thing or it may be um, a big new thing or it may be, you know, something that, that was small and interesting but actually – you learn out later has a big impact. So, you know, that, that that's a, a key take home. You know, you, if you're going to be in this business, you need to be, you know, when you get, see something, get excited. Yeah. Um, if you can't do that, you know, then then the challenges that are, you know, a reality yeah. of our work is are going to be very difficult. Agreed. Agreed. And since we're talking about advice to young scientists, we can go back to the other questions afterwards. What else do you have on that list when it comes to advice? Um, so... I have this thing that, and it's probably not the right way of phrasing it, but um, to be politically aware and engaged, um, and and sort of, you know, there are multiple, you know, potential career paths, um, but at the same time, there are a whole range of things that you can be proactive about um, by being aware of what the system requires for different things, and so you know, there are a whole range of things that you can do to be building items on the CV um, yeah. 
like when you're traveling to a conference, there are you know there will almost certainly be labs that that are worth visiting in the nearby vicinity, and I can guarantee you, you can basically invite yourself to talk. <laughs> and yeah. and people will, will say yes, and and so then you you build up this you know, invited presentation, and <laughs> yep. and you see that you know so it's little things like that, but also um, making sure you're engaged and part of the conversation. Um, you know, so that means you you got to put yourself out there. You, you know, um, ask your questions. Um, you know, you have every you know right, but also you know. Um, ability to, to to come up with useful contributions to the conversation, and you know, you know people need to do that because it's part of a being engaged, but also making people aware that that you want to be engaged. Um, and yes, it's it can be a challenging thing; it can be very intimidating. Um, but you can you can basically train yourself to do this um, to some extent. I mean, when I was doing my PhD, I mean, I was in in a department full of um, mostly medical um, physician researchers. Most of them went on to become like department heads and, and leaders in the community. So it was a very intimidating environment. Um, and But when we had our seminars, you know, I basically set my task. I would have to come up with a question at every single seminar and ask a question at least once every second seminar. Yep. Part of that, just training myself to, to, to do this, but also, you know, making myself overcome those sort of, yeah. innate barriers of, of not wanting to put myself out there that I think most people feel. Um, but, you know, we want to know that. And, and then, you know, I, I think most people experience the fact that, you know, if they listen to the questions that are being asked, many times there'll be questions that they had that they were unsure whether they should ask them. Yeah. So, you know, be, be confident in yourselves and get engaged. I think that's a great advice. And, you know, I'm guilty of that even, even now. Uh, at the GPCR retreats, there were talks and I, I was thinking of questions and I said to myself, oh, I'm just going to, you know, get the speaker and then talk to them. They have a poster or something like that. And somebody asked my the question I thought about. And it's important to push yourself and, you know, me included. Yeah. yeah and, and I mean, the point you made about at least going up and talking to them later. Uh, I mean, that's the other thing you can do is, is you know, get out there, introduce yeah. yourself, talk to people <laughs> with very few exceptions people want to talk about work that they do and they're yes. happy to talk to anybody about it gives them a platform so you know um so you know get out there do that um, both junior and senior researchers in the field um <laughs> the, the one comment i will make is like don't be offended though if people don't always remember you um <laughs> you know for myself in particular um you know i i struggle with being able to recall faces names and and you know it's part of that ADD thing so um but normally if people you know want to remind me then I, I can normally recover the context and, and, and remember but it's, it's like I won't by default likely remember you unless unless there was this very specific thing like like you've done an experiment that I'm really interested in then then that's the sort of information that I can retain otherwise I just lose it and, and yeah. you need to bring me back to it so um that shouldn't stop you from going up and engaging and yeah. and and being part of that. So, I think I think you, you make a great point, and I'm I'm a little bit like you as well. I will remember the context. I will potentially remember the person's face, but sometimes names just escape me. It's like when somebody. There are times when someone introduces themselves to me. It's like there is a beep going on in my head, and it's just immediately deleted, and it's not. <laughs> Not against that person. And even in my phone, when I save phone numbers, I typically save the name of the person and add something about them, you know, a meeting or a company so that I can remember um, where we've met. And certainly you made another great point about our field. I think most people in the GPCR field are always willing to chat, always excited to chat. And yes, sometimes it might happen that people don't remember you and then you have to remind them. Or sometimes people are too busy to talk to you. But going out there and talking to people, I think it's just uh, just an amazing thing to do. And everyone can do it. It's just a matter of practice. Yeah. I mean, it, it's intimidating. I, I, you know, that's, that's for sure a reality. And yeah. uh, particularly for people who are naturally introverted, um, but you, you know, it's there's a reality that that most people are happy to talk to you. Yes. Um, 
Yes. The uh, I, I used to. So I, I mean, I you know work with Brian Kabilka a fair bit, and and I um, Brian's great, and he's actually very funny. Um, but you know, people used to be really intimidated about you know talking to him because he, he just doesn't look like he, he wants to be engaged, but he actually is. Yeah. Uh, he's very happy to assist. Like, so don't be fooled by, you know, if somebody looks like they don't want to, yeah. you know. Um, uh, we can't control what, what our personality reflects. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and, and most people, I mean, you'll, you'll get exceptions to the rule, but um, but most people, the vast majority of people, are very happy to, you know, have a chat to you. Um, yes. So, you know, keep that in mind. Agreed. Agreed. And and I think even just sending an email or, you know, connecting on LinkedIn is already a great first step for, for those of us who are introverted, who are, you know, afraid. But I think to to work on that and build that confidence is really going up there at conferences, going to the poster sessions, introducing yourself, talking to people. And even I feel intimidated sometimes. Like we're talking now. I mean, everybody but everybody does. Yeah, yeah. If if we went at a conference, I we would talk, but I think I would have to, you know, have enough extrovertness coins in that day to go and talk to you or talk to anyone else. For example, that's also what something important for people to understand that we're all different. We all have our, you know, good times and bad times and our ability to be introverted or extroverted. I have a number of extrovertness coins during the day and if I use them up, I'm done. I I can't handle more more conversations and it's really tiring at conferences as well yeah um if uh, if you're not a naturally extroverted personality it actually is very as you said it's actually very tiring to to actually build the motivation and make those efforts uh, for for those of us who need to do that and and i would put myself in that that bladder category it's like i don't naturally go and have conversations with people whereas something like Arthur is very good at it um, mm-hmm. so it's we're just different personality types yeah. um, and you know we we and that's actually been great in the sort of relationship that we have as, as scientists together because we bring totally different things to the table mm-hmm. um and you know I, I would happily say that that you know um we've been extremely successful as a consequence of that so um you know that's building networks building partnerships um uh, and and actually that on that sort of point and and not everybody has the same you know um circumstance that that makes it easy to do but um you know if you if you're able to build strong collaborations um there are a lot of advantages to that um you know it, it provides um you know people who can help you um, if, if you know, like, um, like if your grant, you know, doesn't get funded, if you're sort of basically sharing um, your pooled funding, you're able to maintain momentum of the of the total research group um, without being totally reliant on individual, you know, grants being successful or unsuccessful. Um, e- equally, you know, uh, uh, one of the things that that building those sort of collaborations has has helped with. For other people in an apartment, particularly for those um, uh, people who are having families, is is that when when you know those people go off on maternity leave, their research doesn't come to a halt because their their collaborative partners um, then take over the supervision and um, you know help progress the the, the projects. Uh, so it helps buffer them against the the challenges that that you know your circumstances provide. So as well as being actually great in terms of being able to have multiple different you know types of input and different perspectives on on, on problems so uh, if, if there's an ability to build those sorts of relationships and I very much encourage people to do so and um, there are a lot of advantages to it um, uh, but I understand that not everybody will be in an environment where it's easy to, to form those sort of alliances yeah but I think I think you make a great point about really collaborating and building those partnerships and doing so at meetings now that we were meeting more in person, but even contacting people, talking to people, I think it's important because it kind of, it, it's a, it goes full circle and you never know who you're going to meet. And even if you talk to someone and you can introduce them to a potential collaborator, that's already a plus uh, because you never know 
you know, with, with like with your work when you were flown out to San Diego and everyone at the company knew who you were because of of that experiment that they used to set up their their own assets. You don't know who's going to read your paper. You don't know if you introduce two people how they're going to collaborate. Um, I we just I think two or three weeks ago submitted a paper to Science. Um, and it's a collaboration. I'm co-second. We're an army of people on that paper. And that collaboration started out in 2014 at mm -hmm. a conference where I was presenting a poster. Someone stopped and said, oh, my roommate would love to talk to you. So I ended up talking yeah. to the roommates. So I met Ian, Ian, who was a PhD student at NIH. We ended up collaborating. He introduced me to his PI that enabled me to move to NIH later on. And then the work that I've done for with them just got submitted. And it was just yeah. a, hey, let me introduce you. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, the in-person conferences yes. uh, are major drivers of, of building collaborations. Um, and, you know, obviously, uh, the, that, that's been a, a component that's been missing. I mean, in, there have been advantages in, in, you know, these virtual meetings in the sense that it, it has given access to people who otherwise would not have the resources to be able to get to meetings. Um, but but the whole being able to network, talk to people, come up with ideas, start new collaborations, that, then that that is obviously something that, that is an in-person thing that as a major driver for that. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, it's good that we're starting to get back to that a bit, albeit that, that travel is about a third more expensive than it used to be. But and it's, it's, it's better painful. to be able to travel than not travel. Yes, but it, it is painful with all the flight delays that we've experienced. I In May, I spent the night at Newark Airport because our, our my flight from Buffalo to New York got delayed by six hours. So I missed the other one and it was just this messy thing. But it was absolutely worth it for those two and a half days of the GPC retreat. Yeah, you've got to do a little bit more planning about making sure you've got at least a, a day spare before anything important um, yeah. in case you, you have to deal with those issues. Fingers crossed um, my worst delay has only been six hours and I haven't missed any connections. That's good. Um, but, but, but I don't travel with checked luggage. Um, doesn't matter how long away. Unless my wife's traveling with me. In which case you'll have this massive camera and a big suitcase, but um, but otherwise, if it's just me for work, um, it doesn't matter how long. It's, it's what I can take with me and, and carry on, and everything else I'll work out post. Yeah, um, it just just means that you're not worried about connections in the same way yes. that, that you would otherwise. No, agreed, agreed. All right, let's get back to GPCRs because I have to ask this question. Uh, you mentioned working on calcitonin receptors and then on class B1 uh, peptide uh, GPCRs, binding GPCRs. What's your favorite GPCR if you have one? Well, it would be a family, and it's the calcitonin amylin receptors. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the calcitonin, so amylin receptors are heterodimers of calcitonin yes. receptor and, and one of three ramps. So there are three amylin receptors as a yes. consequence. And so, I mean, they've been, you know, part of critical elements of my career, um, even though we do a lot of work on other things. Um, so, you know, from, from you know, my original funding, the original interaction in the industry, um, you know, so it's my first interesting major discovery was around those things. Um, the eventually being able to work out what the molecular basis was for an amylin receptor. Um, I mean, what... <laughs> One of the things we, we had funding for from that original industry interaction was to try and clone amylin receptors. Um, and so we would, our group was doing expression cloning and we do, you know, dilution of, of your things until you isolate an individual. And so we would be tracking receptor binding and, to a point and then it would always disappear. Um, and, and it was nice to learn that that wasn't because we were just shit at our job, but <laughs> but there were two components, and at some point we were separating the the, the cDNA that was encoding those, and, and as a consequence, we no longer had the receptor. So, um, yeah, eventually, you know, being able to, to demonstrate that ramps were, were the missing link, that was another, you know, a sort of a major step. Uh, and then to be able to, you know, take forward, and, and so the CTL was actually the first receptor that um, we did by CryoEM, and it was the first GPCR sold or at least published by CryoEM. Um, 
And then, you know, recently we, we've been able to solve all the amylin receptor structures as well. So that's been um, exciting um, as part of that. So, um, and, and they're interesting receptors because, you know, they're now, uh, there's a lot of interest in terms of them as potential BC targets. Uh, and, and very interestingly, even though we've known for quite a while that, you know, if you activate amylin receptors, you can, you know, lead to, to weight loss and other energy effects. Um, but the CTR wasn't considered to be relevant to that because if you have selected calcitonin receptor agonists, then they don't do anything to body weight. Mm. Um, but the data now looks like if you co-activate amylin receptors and CTRs, you actually get a much more efficacious effect. And so these these new dual amylin calcitonin receptor agonists um, uh, have become, you know, quite uh, a lot of interest around that. Uh, and um, Nova Nordisk, you know, has a this um, compound or, or drug called cagrillantide. And so they had recent um, data from that as a monotherapy. They were getting 10% weight loss in patients and, and as a combination therapy with semaglutide, a GLP-1 agonist, you know, you know, weight loss around um, 17 sort of percent. So um, really, really good epic, efficacy in that sort of space. So um, I think there's a lot of potential um, in targeting these, these receptors for uh, metabolic disease. And how interesting. Um, and it, I think I'm trying to think back as to how many people had a family of GPCRs as their favorites. And I think you're among the, the first ones who thinks in, in, in terms of a family. Um, Andrew Tobin. Did, did had, Andrew did Andrew only have a specific muscarinic? <laughs> well, no, Andrew had a, a phosphorylation site as a as a favorite. He wasn't even a GPCR; he was a phosphorylation site, <laughs> which I thought was. was <laughs> which was, and he, he was the first person actually who who mentioned a phosphorylation site. So we've had people like Michel Bouvier who said, "Well, I don't have a favorite GPCR. Uh, I think about GPCRs as tools." to better understand GPCR biology in general. Um, and um, we've had Andrew who mentioned a phosphorylation site. Uh, we had G-proteins. Uh, we had people who couldn't decide between the uh, two different G-proteins. Um, it was it was a difficult, depending on who the person is. There is no right or wrong answer for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a personal question, right? It, so it is a very personal it's question. Your, yeah. <laughs> so exactly. you mentioned... You mentioned metabolic diseases. Uh, do we know about other diseases uh, in which the calcitonin or amylin receptors are implicated in, and what could those be? I mean, well, calcitonin receptors were primarily of, of interest as a, in the context of bone disease. Um, and so, you know, for a while there, there was a interest in peptides and training osteoporosis um, and hypercalcemia malignancy. Uh, but the reality is it, it was not a particularly good drug for osteoporosis, didn't do a lot, um, didn't matter how many suppositories the Italians wanted to take with it, um, <laughs> didn't make it any better. The, it was very popular there as a suppository apparently. Um, anyway, getting off topic. Uh, so, but I mean, it's it's still potentially useful for things like hypercalcemia and malignancy, and that that and some of that relates to the nature of of, of the biology of calcitonin receptors, and and so they're more relevant when you've got high bone, bone turnover states. So when when um, organisms are young, um, or or they've got a, a disease where where you're getting high bone turnover, then then you can get um, efficacy with with calcitonin agonists that, that mm-hmm. um, act on those receptors in osteoclasts and, and basically yeah. you know, turn down resorption. Interesting. Now, you mentioned osteoporosis, and I immediately thought about PTH receptors, and those are also targeted in osteoporosis as well. And I was trying to figure out, okay, what's the relationship between the two, and can we modulate both receptors in order to... Well, PDPH is still a, a good target. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's efficacy for for peptide ligands. Um, though I don't, and and there's it's an interesting target because you you have different profiles that appear to be better for some diseases versus yes. others, and yeah, and there's a lot of complexity in terms of um, what it is about the nature of, of the different types of, of drugs. Is it just that the the pharmacokinetics and uh, properties and 
uh, and the timing of, of stimulation, or is it about the the way you know they signal? You know, so biosignaling and regulation is that relevant? Yeah. Is it targeting subsets of things that might interact with other proteins like ramps? It, it, it's complex, but yes. very interesting um, world. Yes, and then you have two PTH receptors, and then they have all these differences, and it's this it's this complex yet very beautiful GPCR world. Well, they're all class B one, so they're excellent, right? <laughs> so the I and I ask this for every from everyone, and I think the answer is always yes. But I was hoping you could elaborate on that. Do you still do you think GPCRs are still good drug targets? Well, you know the answer. <laughs> it's yes. <laughs> it's yes, of course. Well, if I didn't believe, so um, Arthur. Uh, uh, Bob Lefkowitz and myself are co-founders of a, a company that was just set up recently called Septurna Inc. Yeah. It's you know, specifically established on the premise that these remain excellent targets. So, mm-hmm. you know, we definitely, you know, believe in them and, and believe that there's, a, you know, enormous scope um, there. But it's there's a lot of complexities in being able to target them. They're not an on-off switch. And yeah. so um, understanding how to target them is 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 often not clear. Um, we, we can demonstrate that, that different ligands can do different things. Um, and, and that's both a, a, a you know big opportunity, but it's also a challenge as to well, which of those things is, is what you need to be doing and and is that relevant for all the targeted tissues or is it different in individual target tissues? And then you've got the secondary problem of, of um, having model systems uh, preclinically that are appropriately translatable in, into into people. Um, and, you know, very often that, that isn't a clear-cut translational path. Um, I mean, one of the other receptors we work on, GLP-1 receptors, um, um, that's been an area where the translation has been excellent. And so, you know, there are excellent peptide drugs yeah. and algae peptide drugs and things that target that. Um, whereas in, in the in in other spaces, it's a lot less clear, and that's true also actually of the sort of amylin receptor sort of space. Um, Cagrillantide is is efficacious, um, but there have been other um, peptides that can stimulate both receptors, uh, and they don't appear to be as efficacious at the moment. They they they've been. Um, ligands that are based on a, on a salmon calcitonin template rather than an amylin template that have been left as efficacious. But I don't know that that's the reason. Uh, I know that they activate amylin receptors differently. We can show that structurally, but I don't know that that's the reason that the translation doesn't occur. Um, and because they all work really well in rodents, um, which I think is probably due to the fact that um, you can continually sti- continue to stimulate aversive pathways in rodents and, and lose weight. Uh, whereas that becomes intolerable in, in people, or, or it gets or it gets down regulated and doesn't become effective anymore. So I think that, and I'm guessing I'm not a physiologist. <laughs> I'm basing this on, on uh, what my interpretation of other people's work. But you know, I think that's part of it. Is is you know what the strength of activation is down these different pathways, yeah. um, and what that means for a rodent versus a human. But I. You know that that's a guess at this point in time, but it it points out the fact that there there is this translational nightmare that that everybody has to deal with. It's not a yeah. GPCR specific nightmare, but um, yeah. it's particularly acute with GPCRs. Uh, and when you want to do something other than just block it, um, and, yeah. and so what what type of stimulation um, you know, do you need to target? Just perfectly accessible sites, or also central sites, or this. Yeah, you made a great point about this black box where you you go from GPCR and then GPCR biology and then animal pathophysiology and then animal models and is that applicable into humans? And I think that's the that's the million dollar question is can we draw that path out in order to decide okay for this this is the GPCR that's causing disease X or at least it's part of disease X we want to target it this way. And then that's translatable into rodents, animal models, and then into humans. And it's such a difficult path. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, in, in pharmaceutical companies, there's a lot of emphasis on trying to get some some 
validation in, in people. Um, yes. It's a lot of work in, around that sort of genomics, uh, bioinformatics, um, to see if, if you know if there are naturally occurring mutations from receptors that that can provide some validation of it as a target in particular diseases and these sorts yes. of things. Um, but obviously, you know, it's it remains complex. It does. Okay, so I have to ask about Subterna. So I'm fully aware of of Subterna, and I saw the the articles and the news, and it's it's been in our newsletter. But um, I would love to, if if possible, to get some background story as to how did it come uh, alive, and how did you, Arthur and and Bob, get together and decide, okay, we're gonna work on this and launch it. Um. So. so... Arthur and I um, ended up coming through a different path to Bob. So, uh, and it all converges through um, this this venture capitalist company called Third Rock Ventures. Yeah. So, Third Rock Ventures is a very successful venture capitalist group. They invest primarily in the sort of biotechnology space, and I think they've established over sixty companies, uh, of which I think only three would be considered to be. Um, not making any money at all, and everything else is made from little to lots. So they're a very successful group yeah. in in terms of identifying um, a space for for companies to to be set up, uh, and then you know getting the right people in place. So I mean they they were looking at doing this, and they had a in the GPCR space, um, and they had a strategy for doing this. Um, and at the same time, Arthur and I and, and Denise. Um, you know, for example, we're, we're also talking about doing something similar um, and also with very similar strategies using structure-assisted um, design, using our expertise in molecular pharmacology and so forth. So, um, and, and this over, you know, extended time period of years, um, so we started initial conversations with them, um, uh, had a whole bunch of meetings, I said, over, over the years, decided that, that it would be better for us to, to just do one company mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, be co-founders in, in, in that. And so that's basically what ended up happening. Um, obviously a lot of detail in, in the yeah. interim. And then Bob had been involved with Third Rock and the initial um, setup from from their side. So, and that's how we all sort of moved in t- together. Uh, and there are, I mean, we're the, I mean, Arthur, Bob and I were the, the sort of named scientific founders, but there are others who are, yeah. Uh, you know, part of the founder group um, that, that don't get the, the limelight. That's great. And, and I, I've I've been following Subterna on, on LinkedIn, so, and Third Rock as well. I'm trying to keep as updated as possible with the, with the GPCR-focused companies. Um, one, because it's interesting. Two, I think it's important for people to, to know that these are potentially options. And even for trainees, you're developing something new. You never know. Where that takes yeah. you, where they can take well, you. Well, a lot of lot of the the um, you know first people in, in the company, you know, came out of Bob's lab, so or, or other major GPCR labs. Um, yeah. So in, in terms of the initial science, and then obviously then that gets stratified with uh, recruitment of, of people with industry level experience and yeah. uh, in different areas and management and chemistry and so forth. So but it's built on the back of GPCR science, and it's yes. built on the back of um, you know, both junior and senior people in the establishment of these things. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, I know we're we're at the top of the hour. Um, let's. I have two more questions. Um, top three aha moments that you had as uh, as a scientist. Yeah. So, I, I would guess so. So the the first one being the the you know discovery of novel receptor phenotype when I was doing my PhD. So. Um, I don't know if it's an aha, but it was, it was more, shit, that's exciting. Um, well, that's an aha. <laughs> um, and then, you know, uh, actually, you know, working out that ramps for the missing links for making amyloid receptors, um, that, that was uh, an important and exciting moment, um, being able to demonstrate that that was actually true. Um, and the last, I, I don't think I'd call this an aha, but it's, it's more the body of work that, allowed us to, to actually move into the sort of structural biology and cryon space and, and now be able to visualize atomic level detail and dynamics of, of how these receptors work. So it's not so much an aha, but it's it's, it's... it's a determining moment. It's a determining moment, yeah. 
well it it can count as an aha moment i think it's um it 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 fits into that context as to how your career and your lab and and the science that yes. you do let, let, let's let's a moment though <laughs> yeah well it's an aha no, not, decade not, not, more, more more like yeah half a decade yeah um Last but not least, if and when you do have job openings in your lab and in your team, where can people find you? Um, so all jobs will go up on the university, Monash University job site, um, and we would normally tweet out um, yes. jobs if they come up. Um, but we do actually tend to fill a lot of positions via networks, um, and it's they tend to be where we can't do that via networks that we would go to external advertising. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Patrick, for your time. All right. It's good to chat. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. I'm going to stop recording and I want to say goodbye to you in official. That's the one thing I forgot to tell you before we started recording. Now, everyone will know that I do that when I record podcasts. All right. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you for joining us and listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our team members, Attila Forrest, Ines Pinero, and our newest Dr. GPCR protégés, Montserrat Avila-Zozoya, and Nipuna Wirusingo. Welcome to the team, Monsi and Nipuna. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at drgpcr.com. And please become a site member today at drgpcr.com. And until next time, stay safe.